Greetings, and welcome to Research on Religion, a weekly podcast series devoted to the social scientific study of religion. I'm Anthony Gill, your host, professor of political science at the University of Washington, and distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, the gracious sponsor of our podcast. We encourage you to visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org to post comments, ask questions, access additional material related to today's program, and to find out what is happening at the Institute. All right, let's begin. A quick note to all of our regular listeners. I want to thank you for your patience as we here at Research on Religion have been on an extended sabbatical for the past month or two, but hopefully we'll get things rolling again in the coming months with some fresh new episodes. For those of you who are new to the program, we invite you to visit our archives where we have almost 365 unique episodes, which means one for almost every day of the year. You can take a few weekends off, I guess. We have great topics sure to please the most varied of tastes, and they can all be found deep in our podcast repository, so please check them out. Today, we bring back one of my most favorite guests and a friend who goes all the way back to our high school days in Wisconsin, and that's Jim Papandrea, an associate professor of church history at the Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. Jim appeared in the past on our program discussing topics such as the early church fathers, the long-term impact of Christianity on world history, the Catholic nature of early Christianity, and we even chatted about the end of the world and teleological theologies. A lot of alliteration there. Professor Papandrea is a prolific writer and has penned some 10 books, numerous theological pamphlets, and many scholarly articles. Among some titles of his books are Seven Revolutions, How Christianity Changed the World and Can Change It Again, Reading the Early Church Fathers, The Earliest Christologies, Handed Down the Catholic Faith of the Early Christians, and most recently, from Star Wars to Superman, Christ figures in science fiction and superhero films, which will be the topic of our discussion today. Very timely, given that we just saw the release of Justice League and were on the verge of The Last Jedi. In addition to all the words that he fills pages up with, Jim is also an accomplished musician and puts notes to paper as well. He produced his own album called Still Quiet Voice. Information about his music, his musings, and more can be found over at his very own website, jimpapandrea.com or drjimsbooks.com, which will take you to his Amazon page. Of course, if you can't remember all that, we will link that for you at our website, www.researchonreligion.org, along with a number of other tasty treats. So please get over there, visit us, we enjoy the company. Jim, welcome back once again to Research on Religion. Thanks. It is always great to be uh, on the podcast here. I love our conversations, and uh, so I'm excited to be back. Well, yeah, and I'm excited to have you back, too, and congratulations on this new book. It's getting a lot of attention, and I know it's getting a lot of attention because it was hard to book you this time. Um, You're scheduling interviews everywhere. Everybody wants to talk about this thing, and it's a real timely, I guess it's always timely because there's always superheroes and sci-fi movies coming out, but we here at Research on Religion, we're going to devote a little bit more time than most interviews, so... So uh, that, that's a good thing, but it's really, really good to see you getting the attention that this work deserves. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. A lot of people are excited about this book, and it's uh, doing well already, and um, so it's really, uh, it's really good to see that happening. Okay, let's, let's tell everybody the name of the book again. It's the, From Star Wars to Superman, Christ Figures in Science Fiction and Superhero Films. And i got to admit, that seems like a wee bit of a departure from somebody who was devoting a lot of time to writing about Ignatius of Antioch and Ambrose of Milan, some folks who walked the earth almost two millennia ago. So what, what ever motivated you to write a book about religious themes in science fiction movies? Well, back in my early days of teaching, um, this was when uh, it was new and fashionable to teach uh, religion in film classes. And so I jumped on that bandwagon right away, and I taught a course on religion in film. And I found that the, um, the films that resonated most with my students and with me were the hero films, the ones in which uh, there was a character who was a sort of savior figure. Um, and in analyzing those films for the course, I really uh, found that a lot of these hero stories are parallels of the Christ story uh, with some of the same themes and motifs. And so the comparison between uh, popular culture 
and the gospel uh, really sort of came to the surface in these uh, science fiction and superhero uh, stories. So you've been writing this essentially in your head since that early class, some probably two decades ago. We won't say how old we are, but <laughs> that's right. The the actual writing of the book. When did, when did this all start to take off? Did you just do it recently? Because you have some really recent titles in here, like Civil War, Wonder Woman, and a few others. That's right. That's right. I mean, I I started writing it maybe uh, just a little over a year ago, year and a half ago, and then uh, of course wrote the book and it went through the editing process and then. Um, when it came back to me for final edits, I was able to make some additions and some, and some tweaks based on the, you know, the most recent um, of the films, you know, up to not including Justice League that just came out, but pretty much right up to uh, that point. Yeah, uh, Wonder Woman's in the film, and that, which was one of my f- more favorite films of the, the year, so we might end up talking a little bit about that. The big question, though, that every scholar wants to know, did you get to write off all your theater tickets on your taxes? Because <laughs> well, that's you know, research. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, theoretically, I suppose one could, but um, I've found that the IRS doesn't really uh, have a category for Renaissance man. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in the past, I've... I've uh, had them question some of my write-offs, and so I just decided it wasn't worth it for the amount of money yeah. I would hopefully save. So. But, but you've you've seen these films. It, it comes across clearly in the book, and you've shown a lot of films earlier in your uh, film class back then. Are you a big superhero science fiction geek? Uh, mostly sci-fi, I think. Um, I grew up on Star Trek, and I have seen every episode of every Star Trek series that, that's ever been out. Um Star Wars, of course, I've been fascinated with since the beginning. Um, I do love the superhero stuff. I wasn't maybe the biggest comic book guy uh, growing up, but uh, but I did love Spider-Man and you know some of the Marvel stuff. And um, you know, really, whenever they came on TV or in a movie, that's you know that's when I got excited about it. And so, uh, I don't know if I'd call myself a geek. I think I leave that for the for the real pros. But um, but yeah, I'm definitely a fan. Do you have any favorite films? I mean, you go back to Star Trek, and it's pretty obvious that uh, you you maybe not be a Trekkie, but if you've seen every episode of every series, and there's been a lot of these spin-off series, you know, that gets you pretty close to that Trekkie line. But do you have any favorite films or or television series that really you keep going back to? Well, I think in addition to to you know the Star Trek series uh, series is I don't know what the plural of series is, but. Um, I really like uh, I really like the Fifth Element. I think that may be one of my favorite films of all time. And and um, you know I will see anything with Bruce Willis in it. But um, but the Fifth Element. Maybe we'll talk about this later. Bruce Willis is not the Christ figure, even though he's sort of the star of the film. He's not the Christ figure in that film. So it's a really very interesting uh, film, and I think very creative and well done. I'm also a big fan of Doctor Who, and uh, always have been since I discovered Doctor Who in the '80s. And um, another one of my favorites, I think, would be the most recent of the Time Machine films. I really liked that a lot. Yeah, the the chapter that you have, or the uh, discussion you have of the fifth element, I thought was interesting. I, I liked that film. It was kind of confusing to me. Uh, it was quirky, but I, I I missed a lot of the religious themes in it, so we will make sure that we do get to it and, and talk about it. I just have to put in a, a plug here for one film that's not mentioned, which is Kong Skull Island. And uh, I saw that one this year. I've seen it four times. It's my favorite movie of the year. Uh, really? I'm, I'm expecting it to get an Academy Award. And I'm just wondering wow. if there would be any, I mean, Kong as Jesus Christ coming to save an island of people. I shouldn't spoil it for anybody, but um, uh, Kong, Kong wins in the end. But. Well, that is uh, that is fascinating. I haven't seen it, so I, I don't know. But now I need to see it. Yeah, you do. I'm, I'm not a big fan of King Kong movies, but this one was just spectacular. So anyways, one last question about the book. Did you do you have a hard time? Did you have a hard time selling this to the publishers and also to your colleagues? Because, I mean, you're the guy who does early Christianity, church history stuff, and they're all of a sudden looking at you talking about time machine movies and stuff. And you're like, well, what's going on with this guy? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was not hard to sell it to the publisher. They they loved it from the beginning because it's so relevant and it connects with popular culture. And um, you know, it's it's harder to pitch. The other books, the more academic books, I, I pitch those books and I get a yawn, you know, in an email back. <laughs> but um, but with this book, uh, everyone jumped on the idea right away, and um, and even among my colleagues, they're you know everyone's excited about it uh, because it really does connect with people. 
And that's really what we're all about, you know. And I'm going to gush about it even more because I think this is the best book that you've written. And when I picked it up, I thought, oh, come on, this is Jim just kind of being, you know, lazy in his older days of his career, just going to say, here's all the movies I like. But um, it what what it does, and, and folks, I really want to recommend that you pick this up, is that it teaches you a lot of theology, especially Christology and Soteriology, you know, the study of the salvation, uh, of salvation, and that because what you do is you go through movies and you say here's how the movie portrayed the christ figure and resurrection and all these things it seems like it parallels christianity so you lure people in there and then you say but not quite it's missing this that and the other thing and what's really interesting instead of coming right at you and saying okay we're going to study the points of christiology here take notes on this you 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 lure people in and say um but this is not what it is. And so I end up learning what it is. So it's just, it, it's genius. It's absolutely genius. Well, thanks. I mean, I think I was able to find a sort of balance of, of the fun of reliving these classic stories that, that everyone loves with, you know, with the kind of analysis that fans love to do, you know, discussing the bigger questions. Somebody once said, and I quote this in my book, I wish I had said it myself, but somebody said, sci-fi is not really about science. It's about what it means to be human. And so in these discussions, we get to talk about the bigger questions. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be free and have free will? What does it mean to be responsible for our actions? And all of these bigger questions come into play. So um, it, it was a lot of fun to put this book together. So let's talk a little bit about the, the background of this. As I, I mentioned, it's really a book about Christology and other things. And those terms might be unfamiliar to some folks who are the more social science folks that listen in on us. Uh, I'm not a big theologian, uh, but uh, i got, got to deal with this stuff because it comes across my desk a lot. So get, define us some terms for us. Let's first start off with Christology. What is Christology? And what are some of the main themes in, and concepts within that field of study? Right. Well, Christology is really pretty simple. It's, you know, it's what we believe about Christ and who he is. And, and Jesus himself put the question to us in the Gospels when he, when he put the question to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And so Christology is, is Christians historically trying to answer that question. Who do we say that he is? Is he human? Is he divine? Is he both? And what we find out is that, you know, most hero stories in popular culture and even in mythology um, are variations on this kind of savior image um, and uh, and so the, the you know the point of the book is to compare the the Christ figures the savior figures in the stories with who we believe the real Christ is and see how they measure up and the term soteriology comes up, and I'm probably even pronouncing that wrong. I don't know. That I, Everybody explains that to me once a year or so, and then I forget what it is. So this is your chance to explain to me what it is again. Yeah, well, just like Christology is what we believe about Christ, soteriology is what we believe about salvation. Soter in Greek is, uh, is Savior, salvation. So, so the, the, the point of soteriology is to answer the question, well, how does salvation work? I mean, if we think we need salvation, and, and we do think we need salvation, uh, how does it work? Does it work by divine intervention? Does it work by realizing human potential? Does it work by becoming enlightened? What does it mean, and what does it take for us to be saved? Right? What is salvation? So that's soteriology. Now, there's one other big aspect that's weaved throughout the book, too, and you, you uh, put this at the end in this nice chart. I'm going to talk about the chart in a second but at the end of this chart you talk about the anthropology and that gets into my social science stuff but that's that's a pretty important concept too it's not how we understand christ it's not how we understand salvation it's about what well you know the way i'm using the word anthropology uh, might be uh, a, a little bit uh, simplified compared to the way an anthropologist would but anthropology is what we believe about humanity what is a human what does it mean to be human what is the essence of humanity that, that we all share that makes us all uh, alike as humans? Um, and then, you know, taking it to the next level, if we believe we need salvation, right, why do we need salvation? What went wrong? What is it about humanity or individual humans that, that uh, is messed up, that, that, you know, needs to be fixed? What's broken and needs to be fixed? And so why do we need salvation? And that's going to lead us right into the question of, what kind of salvation do we need, right? And so these things are all connected. Anthropology is what went wrong, you know. 
soteriology is what do we need to fix it? And Christology is who is the Savior that's going to do it for us? Yeah, it, it really weaves together very nicely. And when I was going through the book, I'm, again, looking for a straightforward, fun-filled book about, you know, Superman is Jesus and here's why. Um, so we get the Christ figure stuff. But you keep coming back to, you know, how do we understand ourselves, as the, the quote that you mentioned about science fiction not being about science but about humanity. It, it's a mirror reflection on us through our vision of religion and um, our Savior. So that is just just a very cool book. Um, now, at the end of the book, you have this neat little matrix, and it's not the matrix of the movie Matrix, which is also in the book, but you have this scoring system to rank various characters in your book from Batman to Wonder Woman and all points in between to kind of see how close do they match up with Christology, so to, so to speak. Um, we'll maybe put a copy of that chart up on our website or something like that, but um, explain that chart a little bit. What are the variables, to use a social scientific term, how were they determined, um, and explain all that. Right, so um, if we begin with Jesus' question, you know, who do you say that I am? Uh, the history of Christianity is, uh, in large part, the history of Christians trying to answer that question, right? And um, historically, in the Church, the, one of the big conclusions uh, of Christianity on that question is the Nicene Creed. And so what I did was I used the elements from the Nicene Creed as the variables, gave each one a possible five points, and then so that each Christ figure or hero is sort of rated based on, is this person the Son of God? Uh, or is there some parallel to Son of Godness in this character? Is there some parallel to divinity, to preexistence? Um, is there, is this person also human? Um, is this person unique among humanity? Does this person voluntarily sacrifice him or herself? Is there a death? Is there a resurrection? So all of these kind of variables then, um, are analyzed with each character, and they're given a score for each one, uh, from one to five, and then I add up the scores, and basically the, the resulting total is what I call their orthodoxy score. In other words, how close do they come to the Christ of the Nicene Creed? We're going to reveal how folks rank in that. There's a, a few surprises. I'm, I'm kind of surprised by some of these things. Um, but then you also, in this matrix, go back to those categories of anthropology, Christology, and soteriology, and in, within each of them you give them a qualitative ranking to kind of tell us what, how these movies, how these movie uh, characters view humanity. So explain a little bit about the how you categorize people in each of those things. Maybe start with anthropology. Sure. Well, um, you know, the writers of every story, uh, whether they know it or not, are creating a universe in which uh, there, is a, there is an assumption about humanity, assumptions about their savior, assumptions about what, w what it would take to save the people who need saving in their story. So with anthropology, for example... Um, uh, the, their anthropology can be pessimistic, or it can be optimistic, or it can be a mix uh, of the two. If the anthropology is pessimistic, then what that means is humanity or individual humans cannot save themselves. They need someone else to save them. And in fact, uh, I would argue that the anthropology of Christianity is somewhat pessimistic. We cannot save ourselves. We need a savior, right? Um, so what we need is divine intervention. So if the anthropology of a story is pessimistic, you can bet that the soteriology of that story is going to have something to do with divine intervention. But let's say uh, the anthropology is more optimistic, that uh, that would imply that humans can save themselves through progress, through enlightenment, or um, in some way that maybe they don't need uh, a savior in the way that Christianity thinks of salvation, but then you would have to ask the question, what does salvation mean? in that world. And so, um, so for each of the stories, I'm not just analyzing the Christ figure alone in a vacuum, but I'm analyzing the, the assumptions of the universe that the authors have created. Um, is the anthropology pessimistic? Well, if so, then the Christology is going to need to be some sort of descent in which the Savior figure comes down uh, from a higher world to a lower world to, to be the Savior. If the anthropology is more optimistic, then the Christology might be one of ascent, in which a regular human rises to the challenge and becomes more than he was to become the Savior, right? So two different kinds of Christology. And then 
again, the soteriology might be, you know, uh, a divine rescue mission, or it might be a form of evolution, or it might be a form of enlightenment, or it might be just, you know, uh, a mere human who steps up to the challenge and conquers uh, the, the foe at the end. So, uh, basically, I go through each of those things to, to talk about what are the assumptions of the authors behind the Christ figure in the story, and to explain why the Christ figure functions the way he or she does in that story. Now you're pulling back, uh, you're pulling from some of your old studies of uh, early Christianity, and in uh, Christology of the Ascent, or Ascent Christology, you talk about Arianism, um, and that was a, a big debate around the time of the Nicene Creed, too. So just give us a quick spiel on what Arianism is. Right. Well, Arianism is uh, named after a guy named Arius, who, uh, you know, in the early 4th century proposed that uh, that Christ was not really pre-existent, uh, not really divine in the way that, that we would say God the Father is divine, but uh, more something more like a, a mere human who was... Um, who, who achieved per moral perfection, but through obedience to God, and as a reward for that, was rewarded with some sort of infusion of a divine spirit, but he wasn't really divine. So, in the sense of being an ascent Christology, he starts out low, starts out as a mere human, and he's elevated in his status. Now, that's the exact opposite of the way that the majority of the Church was talking about Christ, because the majority of the Church was saying, no, he didn't start out low and get elevated, he started out high, Right? Philippians chapter 2, although he, he was in the form of God, he emptied himself, he humbled himself to become human. So he started out high in the realm of the divine and came down to be a human, which is the opposite. So the, the whole controversy resulted in the Nicene Creed and resulted in the Church affirming the descent Christology as the correct one. Yeah, and this will come into play, too, because the different directors and writers of these movies and, and books uh, oftentimes go to the ascent, uh, especially if they have a more optimistic view of human nature, that human nature can be perfected. So that is something we'll be exactly. watching for. Let's get into the heart of the matter, and I'm sure my listeners are waiting here, and talk about some of these movies. And I'm going to go to the end of the book first, rather than starting at the front of the book, and talk about who I thought would have ranked number one in terms of Orthodox Christology, and that would be Superman. And especially, you, you see the themes of this, it's almost just in your face in the most recent Superman movie, Man of Steel, which I was a big fan of. I really loved that film. I thought it was one of the yeah, best Supermans. Yeah, um, yeah. But he doesn't make it to the top of your orthodoxy chart, but um, we'll, we'll save who does in, for in, in a second. But talk about the superhero category and tell us about the Christology of these different characters, Superman, Wonder Woman, who also is basically tied in the orthodoxy score, and then also Batman. Batman comes into play as well. Right. Well, you know, I will say that Superman and Wonder Woman are tied for the highest score of the superheroes. There's a couple of uh, sci-fi characters that beat them out, but, but they're still both tied for the highest scores among the superheroes, and this is because they have that descent Christology. They have that element of the divine. Now, in Superman, it's that he's an alien, and he literally comes down to Earth, right? So it's got that descent uh, Christology. With Wonder Woman, depending on which origin story you're going with, she's either created by a goddess, or is a goddess, or is half of a goddess, but the point is is that she also has this divine element in her that makes her start out as more than human, and then have to sort of become human and become one of us, rather than starting out as one of us and becoming something more. So you can see with Batman, it's the opposite. Batman starts out as just one of us and becomes something more, which is the ascent Christology. So Batman is more of a parallel of Arianism, of the Arian Christology, uh, whereas Superman and Wonder Woman come much closer to being a parallel for the, the actual Christ as, uh, as the Christian Church understands him. Now, in terms of these movies, um, especially something like Wonder Woman or Man of Steel, what is the anthropology at work underneath some of these? I, for me, it seems pretty optimistic I, a little bit of pessimism there because the you know people are chasing the 
the wrong things at time, but it seems pretty optimistic. So what, what's your read on it? Well, I think, I think at base the anthropology is pessimistic because it, it works on the assumption that humanity cannot save itself. Um, right? We need these external saviors to come to us from the divine realm or the alien world uh, to come down and, and, uh, and help us out. Um, and so in that sense, the anthropology is a bit pessimistic. But there's, a, there's an optimistic side, too, in the sense that humanity is worth saving, right? Uh, I mean, so we can't save ourselves, but we are worth saving. But ultimately, that does lead to a soteriology of kind of divine intervention. We need an outside force to come in and, uh, and lift us up because we're not going to be able to do it on our own. Now, you said that Superman is more of the descent, and Batman is the ascent, uh, an Aryan. In a recent movie, Batman versus Superman, these two folks slug it out in, in probably one of my least favorite superhero movies. I just, Ben Affleck as Batman doesn't work for me. Um, and I love the guy who plays Superman. I can't remember who it is now, but I just, boy, did they waste his talents on this. Talk a little bit about that movie. That comes up in your book a bit. Well, I mean, I was a bit disappointed with it as well, and I, I think that I went into it thinking, you know, how do you write a story where Batman and Superman can fight that lasts more than 30 seconds, right? <laughs> <laughs> because it's Superman. Yeah. So, um, so I found that a little bit hard to buy. I found it hard to believe that, you know, that... Uh, Bruce Wayne would really worry that that Superman is going to become a dictator and, and all of this kind of you know stuff that they sort of concocted in order to, to get the two to fight. Um, but you know what that that film is really about, and it's actually not that different from the, the Marvel one, Civil War. What that film is really about is you know this idea of who watches the Watchmen and this idea that um, you know should we take away people's free will to prevent them from doing bad things, or is, is a better way to go to uh, have people learn that their choices have um, consequences and that they need to be disciplined and use their free will to discipline themselves. Um, so, you know, the, the, this idea that, that with free will comes moral responsibility uh, you know, it's also true that if you take away free will, you take away moral responsibility. And so if you take away uh, someone's free will, then they are no longer responsible for their actions, at least arguably. And so, so this is really the theme of these films. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that, that that's the kind of discussion we should be having around these films is, you know, what does it mean to have free will? What does it mean to be morally responsible people? One of the other things in the Batman versus Superman movie is this uh, character that's trying to manipulate these forces as well, Lex Luthor. How does he play into this theology of movies? Well, you know, uh, Lex Luthor is is speaking for a certain segment of the population uh, that has always struggled with the problem of evil. Um, you know, this, to, to put it simply, if God is great and God is good, why is there evil in the world? And Lex Luthor speaks for um, for that point of view because uh, you know he, his father abused him and uh, and you know he he sort of has this attitude that you know um, there 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 can't be a god because a god wouldn't let that happen. But but again, you know anyone who says that the the point that they're missing is that what God does is give all humans free will, even those humans who are going to abuse that free will. For those of you listening, you might hear Rocky the Wonder Dog in the background. He's uh, our superhero here at the uh, um, uh, Research on Religion, so um, we love having him come into the podcast and bark every so often. Um, you talk about um, the DC comics, and those, uh, you know, we talked about Batman, Superman, and that, but there's a whole other universe that has been enormously successful, and it, it creates all these characters that I'm actually losing track of, and it's going to be coming with a big, huge, 
I don't know, culmination movie, Infinity War, in, in the next few months. And that's the Marvel Universe. It includes folks like Iron Man, Captain America, Captain America Spider-Man, and a few others. And there's that big movie, Civil War, that you liken to Batman versus Superman. So contrast a little bit the DC heroes with what we understand of Marvel. Is there a lot of similarities, or are there some key differences? I think there are a lot of similarities, and I think that there was a time in history when, you know, one of them, Marvel or DC, would come out with a superhero who had certain characteristics or certain powers, and then, you know, just wait a minute, and the other company will come out with something very similar, you know. Um, you know, I mean, you, you've got uh, Aquaman, you've got Submariner, you know, you, you, you kind of same thing. Um, but I will say this, and I didn't say this in the book, because uh, I didn't think of it then, and I, I probably wouldn't want to generalize, because there are so many superheroes. There are just so many. But with regard to the ones that are most popular, it does seem like the DC superheroes have a lot of these descent characters, Superman, Wonder Woman, who uh, represent salvation as divine intervention, whereas the Marvel Universe seems to have more of the ascent characters. For example, Iron Man, Captain America, and Spider-Man, whom you've mentioned, are all ascent Christology heroes. They all start out as regular people and elevate themselves through either technology, um, you know, superhuman serum or spider bites or whatever it is. But they're ascent characters because they start out as, as mere humans and are elevated. And I don't know if, if it would be too much to say this, but it almost seems like, you know, the, the, the DC world has a more pessimistic view of humanity, assuming that humanity needs to be saved by some outside force whereas the Marvel Universe almost seems to have a more optimistic view of humanity uh, with this assumption that, uh, you know, any of us could become Iron Man if we had the money and the technology or whatever, that, that, that salvation can happen more through the realization of human potential. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a few uh, descent characters in the Marvel Universe we have to give credit to, and most, uh, uh, of course, as Thor is the one that really comes to mind. But it is kind of that interesting contrast that you see. And as I'm reading through your book, I'm saying, yeah, I, I, you know, what you're talking about, I kind of see these differences now. And it's really interesting to think back at some of these movies and, and see those themes. One other superhero that you have in there might be one that doesn't hit the radar of a lot of people. And that's the Silver Surfer. And I just have to ask you about that because I was a Silver Surfer fan in the comic books back in the 1970s. Then the movie with the Fantastic Four came out. And I thought that was just really a bizarre film. I did not like that film at all. So how did Silver Surfer make it into this, and what does he represent? Obviously, Descent, I would say. Right, right. Well, um, so I picked the Silver Surfer as kind of representative. Um, By the way, I was a fan of his in the comic books as well, um, and the Fantastic Four. But I picked the Silver Surfer um, to be kind of a representative of what I call the ethereal heroes. In In other words, the ones that are so alien that they're almost not even tangible, right? They're, that they, like, you know, Superman and Wonder Woman come from outside of humanity, but they have a way of becoming human, or at least a parallel to that, to that aspect of the Christ story. Silver Surfer and some of these other sort of ethereal heroes that are so alien that they can't become human. They, they don't become human, and so uh, they represent the Gnostic view of Christ. The, the, the Gnostics historically were those who believed that Christ was certainly divine, but he never became human. And some Gnostics even believed he never even became tangible. He was just a phantom. And so in the spectrum of Christology from, you know, uh, from the, the view of Christ that he's all human and not at all divine, uh, at the other extreme is this view that he's all divine but not at all human. And so I, I kind of use Silver Surfer to... Um, to represent those heroes who are not at all human. Now, here's a question I just want to uh, break in. It's a question that uh, I wanted to ask Robert Joustra, who talked about uh, different science fiction movies on a podcast we had a few months ago. To what extent do these writers of these comic books, of these stories, and the directors of these movies consciously know that they're dealing with these theological themes. I, I think the Superman one, yeah, that's very conscience. But we, we talk about Silver Surfer, 
and oh yeah it's a gnostic arian version of you know it's in fact it's a, a sectarian version of gnosticism and arianism that and you get wow how could anybody even possibly think about this and write into the movie or are they just randomly putting words down and then we as pundits as critics as viewers read that stuff into it well, I think it, it's all over the map. I mean, as you say, some of the, some of this stuff is very intentional, and, and with with many of the uh, later Superman films, um, the the uh, parallels to the Gospels are just all over the place. Um, in other cases, they're not intentional, um, but I believe that there's nothing new under the sun, and so you know, any anything you can say about a Christ figure or a Savior figure has been tried out about Christ at some point in history. And so what we're doing is we're saying, well, look at what these people are saying about this, this hero. Um, back in history, people said that about Jesus. Uh, it didn't work out because it was criticized and it didn't stand the test of time and it doesn't fit with uh, Orthodox Christology, but they tried it out. They said these same things about Christ, and so I'm just sort of drawing those parallels. I mean, the bottom line is I think that... Uh, even when the uh, parallels are intentional, it does not necessarily mean that these authors are promoting Christianity. Uh, many of them simply feel like they're appropriating, um, you know, one myth among many, just because they know that it will resonate with their audiences, even on a subconscious level. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what all this means from the vantage point of the authors and science fiction writers uh, in a minute because um, you have some very interesting thoughts on that. But I want to continue to walk through this world of science fiction. Your book is divided into four major categories, and we just covered one, which are superheroes. The one that kind of took me by surprise a little bit was one that you call time travel. And in the time travel category, we get the number one orthodox character that comes about, and that would be... Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Yeah, I, I would, yeah. I would not have guessed that. I've watched a little bit of Doctor Who. Uh, was in it in the early '80s for you know a season or two. It's like, oh yeah, it's pretty cool. But I, I would not have expected any kind of religious themes in there. So, tell us a little bit about this category of time travel and why Doctor Who ranks so high on the orthodoxy scale. Sure. Well, um, you know when we talk about Jesus Christ. Uh, coming into the world, uh, starting out divine and becoming human. Uh, our word for that is incarnation, uh, enfleshment, right? Embodiment. Uh, the divine word became flesh, right? So uh, time travel in many of these stories functions like an incarnation. In other words, let's say, let's say you were to go back in time and use modern technology to help out some, um, uh, you know, ancient people out of a jam. Well, you know, if I wrote a story about that, you would be the Christ figure in that story going back in time. Um, but from their perspective, from the perspective of the ancient people, you would be dropping in on their world in a way that parallels Jesus dropping into ours. So time travel can be an incarnation if a person goes from one time to another and is able to save or help out the people in that other time. So so time travel represents incarnation in that sense. Now with Doctor Who, I mean, because the show has lasted over 50 years with many different writers, uh, you could do a whole book like this just on Doctor Who alone. Um, but, uh, but I actually went into this thinking that I can't wait to write the Doctor Who chapter because I know what I'm going to find. I'm going to find out that the original creators of Doctor Who gave him two hearts intentionally to be a parallel to the two natures of Christ, the, the human and the divine. Well, I didn't find that out. What I found out is that there, uh, there seemed to be very mundane reasons for them to have uh, sort of decided that Doctor Who would have two hearts. Um, and there are other aliens, it turns out, when you watch the old shows, there are other aliens who also have uh, sort of a, a dual respiratory system or whatever that is. I'm not that kind of doctor. But, um, you know, the, I, I really went in looking for this idea of, of, uh, of making a parallel between the two hearts of Doctor Who and the two natures of Christ. Now, in the end, even though it's unintentional, it still counts for him as a character toward his score. 
um, he because he has these two hearts, he has these two natures, and and you know this is kind of the theme of Doctor Who, right? Because he's an alien, he comes to Earth or he comes into contact with humanity, and he embraces humanity. He sort of becomes one of us in certain ways, uh, at least passes for one of us in certain ways, and falls in love with humanity. And Doctor Who, maybe more than any other character, does what he does because he loves humans. He has compassion for humans. And when you read the Gospels and it tells you what motivated Jesus to do what he did, it says because he had compassion on people. And so it's just very interesting, and it's very ironic, because although Doctor Who ends up with the highest orthodoxy score, um, the show has had some of the most atheist writers of any of these stories. Mm. Uh, and, and so it's, uh, it's sort of like, you know, on one level they are appropriating themes from Christianity, or perhaps they're doing it subconsciously, um, but they are writing... Uh, a, a very good Christ story in spite of themselves. Yeah, and a lot of themes of resurrection come up through here because I don't, I, we've been through about a dozen doctors or so. I'm not sure. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Resurrection is huge. Another one that falls into the time travel category is the Terminator. Now, this one I did not expect to be in the book at all because you look at, uh, you know, we got Arnold Schwarzenegger, tough robot. He's a robot. I mean, there can't be any humanity in the robot, and the other ones look pretty scary mechanical. So how did you fit the Terminator in? Well, you know, uh, it's all about asking the questions, right? Um, and one of the things that comes up in the Terminator film is to ask the question of whether and to what extent this robot, this machine, can become human. Can he learn? Um, you know, can he uh, learn to have a sense of humor? And, and, I mean, ultimately the answer in those films is no, he cannot. Um, and so he, he isn't going to get a very high score for his humanity. Um, but at the same time, uh, because it's a time travel film, and the time travel represents incarnation here, and he comes in from another world with, you know, with powers that, that uh, mere humans don't have. And so for all these reasons, he actually comes out, you know, um, not too low on the, on the orthodoxy score, um, but he is a savior figure, and, and I, I always think of that line when he, uh, he's standing over Sarah Connor, and he reaches down to her, he reaches out his hand and he says, come with me if you want to live. Yeah, now that you say that, I kind of like, okay. Yeah, wow. Um, you, you watch movies closer than I do. Very good. <laughs> here, but, I, yeah, I watch them a lot. <laughs> multiple times. But here, here's the challenge for you. You have two other movies in the time travel one. And I, w I was going to skip over one, but you mentioned the most recent edition of the time travel movie is one of your favorite films. So I'm going to give you a chance to explain that one. But the other one that really I had to twist my brain a lot was Planet of the Apes. So go ahead and, and try to justify these as uh, theological themes, or at least tell us the theological themes in these movies. Right. Well, in the original Planet of the Apes, uh, which is which is the the one I spend the most time on, I do mention the more recent uh, versions. But in the original Planet of the Apes, uh, Charlton Heston's character Taylor is the Christ figure. Mm -hmm. He comes from one world and drops down into another, and in that world he finds um, that humans are enslaved, people are being oppressed, and he tries to help them. Now he's not super successful. Um, but you can still see what the, what the writers, well, in this case, um, uh, Rod Serling was the writer of that screenplay. Um, you can still see what he thinks of religion, what he thinks salvation would mean. Uh, it's basically a salvation by enlightenment. Um, you know, if you, just, if you just know the right stuff, that, that will help you. Um, so there's still, all of these themes are still uh, at work in Planet of the Apes. Um, but it's a, you know it's uh, it's a mixed bag here. So I yeah. I just use it as a way to discuss all of these kinds of, of issues. Yeah, fascinating discussion. Uh, time Machine. I'm a, since I didn't really know it was your favorite film of all time or one of your favorite films, give it a go. What what what, what should we be learning from Time Machine? Well, again, Time Machine is another um, a story where where time travel becomes a form of uh, incarnation. Although it's interesting in this one because. He doesn't go into the past to help people in the past. He goes into the far distant future, 
to help rebuild humanity 800,000 years in our future. Um, but this is also another interesting case of, of a phenomenon that I've noticed several times, and that is when you go back to the original story, uh, if, it's a, it's, if it's one of these films, it might be going back to the, the book that it was based on, in this case, the H.G. Wells book, The Time Machine. Or if it's a superhero um, film, it might mean going back to the, to the comic book, and, and Superman would be a case here, where um, in the original version of the story, the character is not a Christ figure at all. But when they turn it into a movie, it's the filmmakers who turn the protagonist into a Christ figure by adding these themes of, of uh, you know, self-sacrifice and salvation and stuff like that. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought that up. I, and maybe I did read The Time Machine in book form, but you, you make uh, some observations that it's very different, that the person speaking in The Time Machine is very ambiguous, whereas in later um, movies sometimes it's portrayed as hg wells the author himself and other times it's a professor figure and things like that um why, why did you like the most recent version of the time machine the best um i just liked the way they did it i mean they, they of course uh, strayed from the book um probably more than any other version has uh, but i liked the way uh, visually i thought it was i thought it was well done and um there's a there's a great line towards the end that um, I wish was in the original, but uh, whoever whoever wrote this is brilliant. But um, when when the protagonist finally meets the uh, what they call the Uber Morlock, the very smart uh, underground dweller, and um, and this this Uber Morlock says to him, you know, you tried to travel into the past to change the past, and then you tried to travel into the future. Um, to find out why you couldn't change the past. And, he's, and he says to this guy, he says, you are driven by that most terrible question, what if? And that's just such a great line, because how many of us waste our time um, obsessing over what if? You know, what if I could change the past? What, what if I could change things that happened to me in the past? Um, and, uh, of course, you know, at the end of the day, the reason why you can't change the past is because if you could change the if you invent a time machine to go back in time and change the past and you do it you change the past then you've erased your reason for inventing the time machine in which case you'll never invent the time machine which means you'll never go back and change the past and so that's why you can't change the past Ooh, a lot of philosophy vicious cycling down there that's hard to think of <laughs> But Trekkies, it is now your turn. Um, the first chapter of your book is called Aliens Incarnate, and it encompasses most of what we would consider the outer space science fiction genres, or the, although you have iRobot in there, which kind of is the mix of, of you know, outer space and here. Star Trek looms large. So go ahead and tell us about theology in Star Trek, and also tell us about the interview you had with uh, Ronald Moore, who's studied Star Trek intensely. Right. Well, you know, um, first of all, I'll say uh, Ron Moore is a great guy. Uh, he was so generous to give me the time to do the interview and allow me to print the interview in the book. And for those who don't know him, he is one of the top writers and producers for television science fiction. He was uh, one of the main writers in Star Trek um, the Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. He was a showrunner for the, the uh, reboot of, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on it. Now, um, yeah, well, one of, the, one of the other series that now I'm blanking on the name. And uh, he continues to produce um, science fiction television and top-notch stuff. He's an interesting guy because he grew up in the church but fell away and... Um, for a long time considered himself an atheist, and you can still find websites that say he's an atheist, but in talking to him, you know, he says that now he admits he's, he's not an atheist, he's an agnostic, because to be, you know, in, intellectually honest with yourself, you can't claim to know for sure that God doesn't exist. You can only claim that you don't know whether God exists and, and that he has come to the point where he, he's willing to accept the idea that there are bigger things out there than what we know about. Um, and in that interview with him, you know, he admitted to me that, uh, you know, for him, Christianity is just one myth among many from which an author might sort of mine uh, imagery and symbolism uh, to uh, grab the emotions of their, of their audience. And so we have 
Christian and other religious uh, imagery in Star Trek from the beginning. But what we also have in the Star Trek universe is a kind of a, a message uh, that says, you know, that uh, really salvation is all about human progress. And uh, human progress means outgrowing religion, because uh, religion only leads to war and oppression and, and all of these kinds of uh, assumptions. And so, you know, if you look at the Star Trek universe, um, the, the Earth has evolved to the point where uh, people no longer need religion. And so Earth is held up as this, you know, society where they've achieved peace, they've, achieved, they've gotten rid of poverty, and, uh, and they've all, and they've, at the same time, they've gotten rid of religion because um, there's this assumption that religion holds humanity back from our potential, right? Um, that humanity is our own highest authority, and science is the ultimate interpreter of truth, and if you really want to progress you gotta, you got to get rid of religious faith. And then, and then what, it, what it does, and this is kind of brilliant, is it takes all of the um, issues surrounding religious tolerance and conflict and projects them on other worlds and other planets and other species. But, um, but Earth is supposed to be the model, and uh, Earth has achieved utopia, and utopia is atheist. And so, so this is kind of the underlying assumption that, you know, Christians who love Star Trek... And there's nothing wrong with that, but we need to go into this with our eyes open that there that there's there are assumptions under here, and they're sending a message that doesn't square with our worldview. You know what I mean? Right. Now, th- there's a tension here that you bring out, and this is true in some of the other films as well, is that in the Star Trek universe, it's reason really that leads us to, you know, this utopia that we've progressed and we've gotten rid of these ancient myths of religion, etc. But yet emotion still plays a huge role in that. And that, how does Star Trek wrestle with that in theological senses? Well, you know, I think that... um the, the fact that, you know, these, these things that we believe about um, humanity and our relationship to God and our need to have faith, um, these, these things, because they're true, they keep cropping up in, uh, in the stories that are even written by non-believers. And um, in my interview with Ron Moore, we were talking mostly about one particular episode that he wrote um, for Star Trek The Next Generation, and I pointed out to him something that he hadn't even noticed, which is, uh, and I, I go into it more in the interview in the book, but, but the short version of it is that this episode seems to present a certain message. And at one point, uh, the character Data, the android, says, you know, I, I can't believe in anything if I don't have empirical proof, evidence. But later in the episode, that same character, Data, talks about his own sort of religious conversion in which he had a leap of faith, in which he took a leap of faith. So, so you know, he's contradicting himself, and the, the writer of that episode never even noticed it, um, because at the end of the day, when Data, the android, wants to claim to be a person, part of being a person means being able to have faith. Mm-hmm. So these things, these things still come out. You know, you, they want to send you the message that, you know, more science means less faith and more progress means outgrowing religion, and yet they can't get away with from it. It keeps, it keeps popping up because it's, because it's part of who we are. Yeah. Now, that was a really kind of fascinating subtext uh, that you brought up to my attention, which I thought was really kind of cool. Uh, take a stab at this one, The Fifth Element, which you say is one of your all-time favorite films. Um, to me, it was visually appealing, and again, it had Bruce Willis. I'm a big Die Hard fan, so anything with Bruce Willis is just, you know, Die Hard light for me. And um, it was a neat film, but I honestly, I whiffed on any kind of theological uh, message in there, so enlighten me on this one. Well, uh, the, uh, for those who have seen it, uh, there's a character named Lilu. She is an alien who uh, is, is called a divine being, but who is also very vulnerable, right? So she has this divine side, but she has also this very um, humble and weak and vulnerable side. Uh, so the, she is the Christ figure in this film, and she, she descends. She's a descent figure. She comes down to Earth to be a savior of Earth, and I mean without going into the whole story, you just have to see it if you haven't seen it, but um, 
she is the savior figure, and yet she can't save Earth without some relationship with humanity. And, and Bruce Willis represents humanity here, and he has to accept her. And it, it basically parallels the Christ story probably better than any other science fiction story. Uh, in fact, uh, since we're giving away our orthodoxy scores here, um, she is she gets the second highest score after Doctor Who because of the way that she uh, sort of incarnated into Bruce Willis's world, into the Earth world, the way she becomes a savior, um, etc. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, the film is visually stunning. Uh, it's it's kind of a you know an assault on your senses, but in a good way. Uh, I, although I'll, I will say that you know just because I love these films and shows does not mean that I'm endorsing them for all audiences and all ages, right? right. I mean, uh, this is probably not a film for the kids, but, um, but it is one of my favorites, and it is one of the most orthodox. In it. As weird as it is, when you look at the actual aspects of, of the parallels between her and, and the real Christ, she, she comes out with, a, with one of the highest scores. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and watch that film again because, again, being a Bruce Willis fan, I thought he was the center of the movie, and I kept watching this, and now you point this out. I'm like, okay, uh, time, to, uh, time to go back and revisit some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, well, he is, you know, he is the protagonist, mm -hmm. but it isn't always the case that the protagonist is the Christ figure. Right. Interesting. Any words on Star Wars? Because we're right here at The Last Jedi, and I, I don't assume that you've seen The Last Jedi. I haven't seen it. Uh, I've not been a big fan of I the recent I haven't seen ones. it yet. Okay. So what, what... Uh, I got my tickets. Oh, I you do? Yet. Wow. Okay. Um, so what, what about Star Wars? What are the general themes in Star Wars? Well, I mean, the biggest thing in Star Wars is this concept of the Force. And, you know, people have been trying to make a parallel between the Force and, and divinity or God since the first movie came out in the 70s. But what's always disturbed me is that, you know, there, there was always this prediction that someone was going to come to bring balance to the Force. But before that happened, things were pretty good. The Jedi were strong. Uh, yeah, there's an evil empire, but I mean, you know, for a while things seem good. And then along comes Anakin Skywalker, who brings balance to the Force. But how does he do it? He does it by bringing in more evil, right? So, um, so balance and the idea of balance means that evil and good are sort of equal opposites that need to be kept in balance. In one of the animated shows, uh, in the, the Clone Wars, there's an episode where someone says that if, if balance is lost, the universe could be destroyed. So what does that tell you? What it means is that evil is necessary. Evil is necessary to maintain the balance. The, the goal uh, in Star Wars, the, the teleology of, of the Star Wars um, universe, is not the, the triumph of good over evil. It's the balance of good and evil. And for good and evil to be in balance, that means there has to be evil, which means evil is necessary, which means evil is a good which means good and evil have lost all meaning, right? So ultimately, at the end of the day, when you, you, know, when you go down this road of balance, then you know, the concepts of good and evil lose all meaning. Now that theme really comes to play with a lot of the other films. The first film had a, a fairly happy ending. Um, you know, everybody was smiling at the end, and you know, we blew up the Death Star and yay verily. And one of the big figures in there is Obi-Wan Kenobi, and you rank him. How does he rank? I, I would have thought uh, before digging into this book that Obi-Wan Kenobi would rank high on the orthodoxy scale, but apparently I'd be wrong. Well, I mean, Obi-Wan Kenobi is the Christ figure of the, uh, of the earliest film. Yeah. Uh, but he ranks low on the orthodoxy scale because, um, well, you know, he's, he's not a, really a descent character, um, but he is more of a Gnostic Christ figure. Um, salvation is more through, through knowledge, through uh, self-enlightenment, through, through the knowledge of the Force and the Force in you. It's it's that whole Gnostic concept of the divine spark. In fact, they even, they even created divine sparks in the Star Wars universe. They created these things called midi-chlorians, which are divine sparks within certain people. Um, you know, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi does voluntarily sacrifice his life, but um, the resurrection is not a bodily resurrection. It's just sort of a, you know, phantom kind of appearance. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, you know, when 
when we see Anakin Skywalker, when we see Darth Vader redeemed, it's not because of anything Obi-Wan did. Obi-Wan tells Luke to kill his father, and Luke disobeys that and tries to save uh, Darth Vader. But even Luke doesn't save Darth Vader. The person who saves Darth Vader is Darth Vader, um, because when he makes the decision to turn against the Emperor and try to save his son, um, that's when he receives his redemption. So at the end of the day, Star Wars is this weird mix of, of uh, you know, sort of an Aryan Christology, uh, saving yourself, with a Gnostic soteriology uh, where salvation has to do with enlightenment. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, he didn't get a very high score. I have a challenge for you, and this didn't come up in the book, and I, not that I remember, but 2001 A Space Odyssey. I, I have no, no understanding what that movie was all about. It seems like it's going to be very spiritual and theological, and the, the last, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes of the movie just had me ultimately puzzled, and it has something to do with creation and rebirth. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, you know, uh, it's been a long time since I saw that film, and I didn't understand it then either. <laughs> um, I will say I think that it has something to do with, um, with the concept of artificial intelligence uh, versus the idea of the image of God. We are created by our Creator in the image of God. If we turn around and create artificial intelligence, will we be creating with the image of us on the artificial intelligence? And you know, and I mean, in my opinion, I don't think artificial intelligence, true AI, is really even possible um, because of the fact that it would not have the image of God, and it would not, uh, so that it could not be truly rational, uh, and so it could never be sentient. But that's just my opinion. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think those are the kind of the themes that are floating around there. But I, I really wouldn't be able to say too much more than that. Yeah, a tough film, and as you mentioned, artificial intelligence. I guess I kind of missed on that theme a little bit. But uh, uh, we'll point folks back to one of my favorite episodes, uh, which dealt with Buddhism and the Robo Apocalypse, which I thought was going to be a really strange episode, but turned out to be very enlightening. So, folks who are interested in all this stuff, uh, please check that out as well. With time remaining here, uh, fairly short, I want to skip over the chapter that you have on alternative universes. And here you talk about um, the Matrix, as well as a few other things that I'm not all that familiar with, the television series Lost, and then also the movie Pleasantville, which seems to be a, an odd inclusion in the book because it, I guess it's science fiction, but I just never thought it was. So folks, if you're interested in that, I encourage you to pick up the book from Star Wars to Superman. We'll link to it on our website. But I want to come back uh, and talk in, in the final minutes here, get your thoughts on everything that you've learned through this. And one of the things that you do at the end of the book is to critique a lot of these science fiction movies for really missing the boat in terms of Christianity and portraying it in, in ways that are not appropriate. So talk about some of the big errors that we, if, if we are Christians in the, in the truest sense, that we should be worried about seeing this film and just be a little bit more attentive to. Well, I mean, I think... Um I would start with the again the assumptions that many of these writers have when they're creating the universe, uh, the worldview for their stories, uh, and a lot of this goes back to sort of the uh, Edward Gibbon kind of uh, you know uh, assumption that you know the worst thing that ever happened to the Roman Empire was the church, and uh, and and this sort of has evolved into a, a genre of of storytelling that I like to call the church is hiding something from you. You know, I mean, you see this in the Da Vinci Code and other things that, that you know, um, that the leaders of the Church, they, they know it's all a lie, uh, but they're afraid that they'll lose their position in society if they, if they uh, are, are found out, and so they're hiding something from you. And so all of this sort of feeds into this idea that religious faith is bad for, for human progress, and that, that it's holding us back. Um, and so, so this becomes, for, for much of sci-fi, this becomes the background and the assumptions of the, of the worldview behind the characters. Um, and, and, I mean, that, that's kind of the place where I would start. And then, um, and then on top of that, that sort of feeds into this very optimistic anthropology that says that 
Salvation is really just realizing our potential. We don't need a God who is above us, and we certainly don't need any authority over and above ourselves. What we really just need is, uh, is you know, enlightenment and, and time to evolve. Um, but, what the, but the point that that misses is that, uh, you know, we actually do need a Savior. We actually can't save ourselves because, because of our own sin. Uh, our sin alienates us from God, and we need someone, a Savior, to reconcile us with God. And that's, that's the, you know, the part that is often missing. And the other thing that you come back to at the end of the book, too, is this concept that these writers and directors have of sin, uh, sin being injustice and then injustice being this equilibrium force in society. D- discuss what you mean by that, because I thought that was a really kind of nice addition to all the Christology and, and that in the book as well. Right. Well, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying about the, you know, if their anthropology is too optimistic, right, um, then it, it sort of ignores the fact of, of sin, personal sin. So sin is reduced to injustice. Now, it's true. There are injustices in the world that are sinful that need to be um, confronted and corrected. But in reducing sin to injustice, it lets us off the hook for our personal sin, which is really what alienates us from God. And so, so sometimes the anthropologies are um, just a little bit too optimistic and, uh, and, and ignore the fact that on our own, left on our own, left to our own devices, we would actually just, you know, uh, be estranged from God forever. And we can't fix that. We need someone else to fix that for us. We need a Savior who is who, is, who starts out as not being one of us, but becomes one of us, not the other way around. Yeah, I thought that was just such a, a powerful and, and subtle message at the end of the book as well, too, because in today's society we look at injustice as sin and forget the personal sin aspects of this, and we're always looking for our saviors and politicians or other celebrities and things like that, and really kind of missing the boat where we need to start with, and the fact that you discuss that, if we forget this, we separate ourselves from God, and that's really where the true understanding of the Bible becomes um, just really powerful end of this this book, which seems, again, to be somewhat frivolous look at these science fiction movies, but is really, really deep theology that is uh, a great way to introduce a lot of theology for people who might not be all that familiar with it. So, again, folks, pick it up. Last question for you. Um, you are such a prolific writer. You've gotten into so many different topics. What's next for Jim Papandrea? Well, um, I've actually been writing some fiction of my own, and so um, I've got a book coming out, I think, uh, in 2018 that is a uh, historical fiction piece on early the early Christians in the city of Rome, and so I'm, I'm, I'm working on some fiction. That sounds so cool, because your fiction is always historically informed, theologically informed, and that sounds like a really cool thing that we're going to have to get you back on the show, because as I mentioned at the outset, one of my favorite guests and a longtime friend, my guest today has been Jim Papandrea. Jim, always a treat to have you on Research on Religion. Thank you so much. I uh, always appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Research on Religion. To learn more about today's topic, participate in a discussion about what you've heard, or browse other podcasts, please visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org. And if you like what we're doing, please tell a friend. We'd appreciate the company. See you next week.